This episode is brought to you by ELEAP, the Emerging Leaders in Environmental and Energy Policy Network. Founded in 2011, the ELEAP Network aims to stimulate transatlantic conversation and debate about pressing issues related to energy and the environment. The network's more than 100 members from over 20 countries engage in online debates on topics of the day and meet regularly for experiential study tours and other face-to-face activities. The ELEAP Network is a joint initiative of Ecologic Institute, Ecologic Institute U.S., and the Atlantic Council, and made possible by funding from the European Commission and the Allianz Foundation for North America. To find out more about the ELEAP Network, visit us at www.eleap.eu. This is the third installment in our series on Tipping Points, Finding the Energy Climate Balance. I'm Nick Evans. In this four-part series, we bring you highlights from the final ELEAP conference, which was organized by the Atlantic Council and Ecologic Institute and took place June 21st through 22nd in Washington, D.C. All audio was recorded live during the conference. This episode features a keynote by Alex Lasky, president and founder of Opower, an innovative energy company that partners with utilities to provide customers with personalized consumption feedback. In the following, Alex Lasky speaks about the nexus of energy and information technologies. He begins by investigating the history of innovation over the last three centuries, before providing examples of ongoing IT revolutions in the sectors of transport and energy, such as car and ride sharing, and real-time feedback to induce demand-side management by private consumers. The session ends with a few questions from the audience. I hope you enjoy the episode. so I'll start, thank you for having me, uh, and I'll start by just uh, saying that this is the, one of the last times I'm going to be able to say that I'm the president and founder of Opower. Uh, we started this company 10 years ago, a software company. We went public three years ago on the New York Stock Exchange, uh, and a year ago, last week, we were acquired by Oracle, uh, and we're now integrated into Oracle, uh, and I'm going to be leaving at the end of the month. So it has been a terrific 10 years. Um, and uh, we've had a big impact, but there is a lot more impact that needs to be had uh, in these areas. So I'm actually going to talk less about OPower specifically and more generally about themes that I see uh, in the economy and um, emerging companies that I think are worth paying attention to, particularly as you guys are uh, bubbling with ideas and you're going off to a retreat, um, uh, perhaps some uh, stuff to chew on. Um, So I'm going to start with these three folks, Romley, Raul, Kiara, uh, and I'm going to posit to you that these three folks represent the future of the global economy and the future of global innovation. Uh, and while we look towards the future, I think it's critical. Uh, most of you here care about history in a way that's not always the case in Washington, D.C. these days. Um, but in order to think about what the future is going to look like, it's worth looking at what the past has been. Uh, And so if these three uh, and people like them are going to be the keys to the breakthroughs and innovations in this century, uh, I think it's worth looking back a couple of centuries. Here's Henry Ford and Thomas Edison, and they were among um, perhaps two of the most important um, innovators and breakthrough uh, creators of a century and a half ago. And if we think back through most of human history, I would posit that that most of the great innovations in our economy and in the way civilization operates has been uh, breakthroughs and changes in the way we produce things, the way things are made. 
Um, uh, whether it's the two of them or it's Norman Borlaug and the Green Revolution producing more food on the same amount of land, um, I think we've seen tremendous changes. Uh, so take Henry Ford. Uh, in the late 19th century, only the very, very wealthy had access to things like trains and carriages. Everybody else got around on their own two feet, and that was it. And Carl, uh, Carl Benz and the internal combustion engine, Henry Ford and his assembly lines, uh, essentially democratized transportation. Uh, and the changing in the way that transportation is produced allowed many, many more people to have access to vehicles and to be able to travel further for their jobs or for uh, in search of new opportunities. Today, there are more than a billion cars on the planet, and we can't imagine life without them. Henry Bessemer, uh, also around the same time period, uh, invented a new way of making steel. And what that meant was that the possibility of building buildings that were vertical, like the one we're standing in, instead of just horizontal, transformed uh, the way we live. And now, you know, hundreds of millions of people today are still escaping poverty in rural areas and moving to cities. There's a picture of Hong Kong. Which still, when I go to Hong Kong, I, every time I look out the window, I think this can't possibly be real. Um, but it is. And then, of course, uh, in my mind, the most important of, any, of all of these breakthroughs and innovations was, the, was, was what Thomas Edison uh, pioneered in terms of electrifying our economy. Uh, in 1882, when this opened, this is the Pearl Street Power Station in downtown Manhattan. It was the first power station that opened. Con Edison was the first electric utility, really not that long ago in the course of human history. Uh, this power station produced enough electricity to power 400 light bulbs. That's it. There are more than 400 light bulbs on this floor. Um, and they hardly use any electricity. So, but Thomas Edison, I don't know if it was in Menlo Park or in Manhattan when he was celebrating and announcing this great uh, announcement, uh, he probably had had something to drink. And he said, I'm going to make electricity so cheap that only the wealthy burn candles. So here again, his vision from the beginning was this the, the light, which is such a precious resource, um, I'm going to make available to everybody. And not just light, but of course, his invention or his, his marketing of the invention changed the way we live. Uh, it powers our economy. Uh, and you know, with all this tremendous progress, electric utilities provide light so that people can study and read in the evening. They keep grandma warm. Uh, they power industry. All of this great breakthrough, and I don't think we would trade any of that in to return to a pre-industrial world, um, has come with consequences. Right? In the past, we've changed the way technology has gone to changing the way we produce, we make things. Um, but we're on path as a consequence of this tremendous production to a world that is, in Fahrenheit, 10 degrees warmer by the end of the century than it is today. And it's already quite warm, if you haven't noticed. So as I think through and think about the next uh, set of innovators, uh, I'd like to turn to the folks who I think will change the way we consume. And it's, again, these three folks, Romley, Raul, Chiara. None of them are changing the way we make vehicles or transportation. They're not changing the way we build buildings, nor are they changing the way we, um, uh, we electrify the planet. 
but rather they're changing the way we drive, they're changing the way we use buildings, and they're changing the way we use energy. And I'll describe each of them. So Raul, the last time I went to Hong Kong, I stayed in Raul's apartment, uh, which was shocking. The first time I had gone five years earlier, uh, I booked it, it was in the Sheridan, I think. Uh, the idea of staying in some complete stranger's apartment halfway around the world uh, wouldn't have occurred to me five, six years ago. Uh, but now it's second order, uh, second nature for all of us. And though Airbnb, uh, among others, doesn't own any buildings, they book more rooms, more beds available every night than Hyatt, Hilton, and Marriott combined. It's 3 million listings, 65,000 cities in 190 countries, and this is already out of date. They're taking existing assets that we have, spare bedrooms, second homes, an apartment that we're not using, and turning them in and increasing the utilization rate. And we have to remember that buildings account for 40% of all carbon emissions. So if you look at any measure of waste, this is one of them, underutilized assets, underutilized buildings. Ronley, uh, there's a picture of Ronley and of me uh, at the Hong Kong airport. He picked me up. Um, and this is our drive to Hong Kong in the middle of the night. Uber, of course, is just one example, and I'm conscious that there are other things going on with Uber. Uh, <laughs> but um, my intention is not to laud Uber as a terrific company or a great employer, um, but rather to describe what I think they're doing uh, for transportation. My wife and I live uh, with two young kids here in Washington, D.C., uh, and we uh, have one car. Uh, and we have one car in part because we live in a city with access to public transportation, but we have one car because at the touch of a button, somebody will pick us up. Uh, and if you think about the, the car that we do own, even though it's only one car owned by two of us, is more often than not not being used. It's sitting in a garage parking lot on the side of the street. In fact, on average, our cars are used less than 8% of the time across the country. And these are cars designed to, to in my case, hold five people, in some cases seven people, that are more often than not utilized by one person. And their cars built and designed to drive at in excess of 100 miles an hour and they mostly drive. I think the average speed my car has obtained, uh, it's one of the Volkswagen cheating diesel uh, vehicles, um, is something like 22 miles an, uh, an hour. So we have these assets, we have a billion cars on this planet quickly growing, and they're tremendously underutilized. Uh, and they're, and you know, if we're going to, it's a terrific thing that hundreds of millions of people are escaping poverty across the planet. But they're going to demand as the, and expect a lifestyle equivalent uh, to the rest of us, as well they should. We can't afford for everybody to have a car. We need to change the way cars are being used, and Uber is doing it. And I'll get to the last one, which is energy, uh, and the one I'm most familiar with. So one thing that you guys may not know, in the US, uh, and, and this is true largely across the developed world, um, the grid. Thomas Edison's powerful machine, um, the mo maybe the most important valuable machine on the planet, is utilized at less than 50% of its capacity. That is to say that at any given time, on average, the grid is used at 50%, 48% of its capacity, and it's declining. And that's because here in Washington, D.C., for example, 
and just up the road in Baltimore, the grid is built out to handle peak usage. And peak usage happens for a few hours a year during the summertime when everybody's cranking up their air conditioning and people are at work and so on and so forth. And so we, utilities historically have been uh, incentivized to build out to meet the, the peak. And those peak hours, maybe three or four hours a year, represent something like a third of the total cost, capital cost, of building out and running an electric grid. So there is, exists in the same way with cars and hotels, these underutilized assets, and there is an opportunity to, to take advantage of the underutilized asset that is our grid. And we waste more energy uh, than we use in this world. So I'll give you an example of Kiata. I know Kiata because uh, she's among the million customers in Baltimore who Baltimore Gas and Electric, an Exelon utility, enrolled all of their customers into a peak time rebate tariff. And what this means is most of you, if not all of you, pay the same amount for electricity regardless of when in the year and when in the day you use it. Whether you use it in the middle of the hottest afternoon in July or you use it in the middle of the night in April. And of course, it costs a lot more for society and for the utilities to deliver that power depending on when it is. So everybody in Baltimore's territory, for example, was given a peak time rebate. They're now on a plan which rewards them for saving energy during peak hours. Uh, we are notified as a company, as BGE's provider, uh, Opower Oracle, uh, they let us know at 4 p.m. that tomorrow is going to be a peak event. And then between the hours of 5 and 7, we let everybody in the territory know with emails that look like this or phone calls or text message, Ms. Burston, tomorrow is going to be a peak event. As a reminder, if you save during these hours, uh, you can earn money on your next bill. And I'm going to show you what one of these events looks like in real time, or not in real time, but in a minute-long video. So here are all the homes in, uh, in Baltimore. The tall ones are apartment buildings. Here are the communications going out on the, the evening before, emails, text messages, and uh, voicemails, voice calls to customers. And here are the energy savings as measured across the city. And you can see the red of the deepest savings, relatively consistent savings across their service territory among wealthy people, poor people, homeowners, renters. All, uh, more than 60% of people report that they participate and save. Uh, and um, they're getting huge impacts. And here, importantly, if I, if I told Jane or anybody else, you know, we're going to help you earn money on your bill, uh, it's critical to notify the customer the day after the event that they've earned money. Because if you get a bill at the end of, at the end of July that's for $250, you're hardly going to notice a rebate for $12 from July 17th. So the next day, we're notifying the customer by email, text, voice, and with lots of different variations. Thanks for participating, Jane. You earned $8 yesterday. You'll see it reflected on your next bill. We've been at this for, this is the fourth summer we're at it. Uh, we've been at it uh, now for four summers. And on average, across Baltimore's territory, uh, people have reduced their average peak usage by 18%. So we've taken peak usage and shaved 18% of it. And the, the only thing that's happened is people have been given better information and a small, modest financial incentive. So money can be put back into ordinary people's pockets instead of burned up in some diesel-generating peaking power plant. Um, also, customers seem to love it. 
uh, I know Kiata, or I don't know Kiata, but I know of Kiata because she posted on Instagram a picture of her uh, energy savings. Usually when, when customers go to social media to talk about their utility company, the utility executives run for the hills. In this case, um, the uh, customers have had really glowing things to say about this. Uh, we're, they're on track over the next 10 years to generate a billion dollars in savings for their customers. And it's a billion dollars that otherwise would be spent building out a power grid and building uh, power plants and procuring energy, and instead it goes into people's pockets. The opportunity for this domestically in the US alone, according to the Rocky Mountain Institute, is $61 billion a year. $61 billion opportunity to put money back into rate papers, payers' pockets while increasing the utilization rate of our grid. And that's it. That's the end of show. So I'm, uh, I'm eager to answer questions to the extent we have time. I know we started a little bit late, but uh, thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, um, I think I get the the gist of the question. This is um, these are early days. Uh, utilities, until very recently, referred to all of us as rate payers. They didn't even refer to us as customers. Um, and we had a one-way transactional relationship with our utility, where we bought a commodity and we expected the electricity to be. The only time we noticed it is when we flipped the switch and the lights don't go on. So. This has, we have to transform the relationship between utilities and their customers. It's being transformed because for, uh, it's much more heterogeneity now in the customer base um, and people are using it differently. Um, the, the opportunity to do this in more real time exists. The technology exists. We have it built. It's, but it's a question of business models for utilities and, and regulations catching up. And in Germany's case, smart meters being installed because at the moment you don't even have data about your usage. So um, we as a company have saved uh, roughly two and a half billion dollars for, for customers by changing behavior. Uh, we now produce more energy savings annually than the Hoover Dam does uh, in the US produce energy. Um, but we're one company and this is we're just at the early stages of this. The opportunity to transform the grid and transform the relationship between the utility and its customers is, is very nascent. Yeah. I may take, I'm going to take three questions at once and then try and answer them quickly. Go ahead. So, um, I come from the Middle East. You focus on the US where, thank you. So you focused on the US where peak demand is perhaps 20 to 30% of, of the demand or the load. But I come from the Middle East and we have countries that have peak demand that is 50% yes. of the load. So this tells me that there's a huge potential for this idea, for this business model to be implemented in the Middle East. Do you have 
any proposals? I mean, the yeah. people. I mean, I think there is, uh, well, let me take the other questions. Yeah. There is a woman across the aisle here. Hi, thanks very much for the talk and uh, best wishes for whatever comes next Thank for you. you. I'm a reformed behavioral scientist now working in a different sector. And I would be really curious to hear, I mean, so far as I know, in the O-Power portfolio, it's only energy. Yeah, electric and gas. Uh, and as we know, behavioral nudges also work in water consumption in a range of, of areas. What would you say would be the most promising, the most ripe global challenge for behavioral nudges to be applied in the O-Power manner? Uh, in terms of natural resources in particular or environment in generally? Yeah, environment generally. Okay. And then there was maybe two questions up here we can answer quickly together. Would the size of the grid uh, impact your, yeah. your plan? And, uh, you know, in, in work I do, I constantly hear that utilities are not interested really in energy efficiency because they don't, they want to sell more power. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I'm just wondering what kind of resistance you've encountered from utilities in, in adopting your model. So let me, I'll go in reverse order. Uh, um, there's a question from a very eager person in the back. You can do it. Ask it. I can handle, yeah, you. Please wait for the mic. How did I recruit? How do we get BGE in the first place? Well, that actually fits well with the, with this question. So um, it is true that in the natural, one would expect that utilities would want their customers to waste a tremendous amount of electricity. The good news is that we have government and regulators, uh, and um, uh, there actually are some pretty now time-tested and broadly applied across the globe um, incentives that have been developed to align the utilities incentives with their customers incentives and this gets at BGE in particular but globally it's happening. Um, utilities, and I'm going to oversimplify for the purposes, uh, uh, utilities make roughly on average 10% margin on their investments they, they, and so and on the commodity that they pass through to you in most parts of the US and increasingly across the globe they're not vertically integrated so the utility here in Washington DC, PEPCO, doesn't own any generation at all. They don't have any natural interest in a, in a power plant or in the consumption of more natural gas or coal or, for that matter, wind or solar. Um, they make money at, at operating the distribution grid. And so uh, 30 years ago, in, 35 years ago in California, was the first approach where they told the utilities, essentially, we're going to decouple your profits from your sales. Uh, and essentially, again, oversimplifying what that meant is, instead of earning 10% margin on the commodity you sell, will allow you to earn an 11% margin or 12% margin on the commodity you sell. And if the utility could demonstrate that they reduced your, the average consumption by 5%, then earning an 11% margin on the 95% that's left of their business is bigger profits for them and lower bills for each of us. Um, and so those kinds of models, and there's lots of examples of it both in the US and internationally, um, Denmark, which is neighboring Germany anyway, uh, uh, is another place where this is happening. Um, and, and interestingly, in a lot of the developing world, and I can get into the Middle East, I think one of the interesting questions, um, how does this happen? How can we get this kind of thing to happen in the Middle East and other places? Um, I look at the Middle East and I think this is, a, this is a part of the world that ought to be heavily investing, not only in renewables, as seems to be the case, but also in energy efficiency. Um, there is tremendous subsidization of electricity throughout the Middle East and throughout the developing world. We do a lot of work in Malaysia, for example, um, and it, from a development economics perspective, of course, it makes sense as a country is developing to heavily subsidize electricity to in, um, encourage 
industry and improve quality of life. But when you move up the development scale, um, that gets to be a very costly investment for a government to make. And so the choices that these governments have are re remove the subsidy, which results in political turmoil, uh, or invest in energy efficiency and then therefore reduce the burden to government. So we see it happening elsewhere. I think it ought to, I don't, I'm not as, in, in, as familiar with the specific politics of the Middle East, but if you look at, in, in California 35 years ago, the average consumption was 7,000 kilowatt hours a year. In Texas at the time, it was also 7,000 kilowatt hours a year. Texas, which went to a completely competitive market without regulation, essentially, it's now 15,000 kilowatt hours a year. The U.S. went from 7,000 on average to 10,000 on average, and California 35 years later is still 7,000. So these policies work. Um, Kuwait uh, is 70,000, as an example. So uh, there's huge opportunities, uh, clearly, in the Middle East. Uh, the impact that we've had to date is a $2.5 billion savings, 15 terawatt hours of energy savings. We're roughly at four or five terawatt hours a year now in energy savings, but the opportunity to scale this is, is significant. Uh, I think behavioral science can be, um, uh, you know, you should not be a reformed uh, behavioral scientist, get back into it, uh, because um, I think behavioral science and, the, and changing the way people use and consume things is, you know, basically what I talked about. It's not just behavioral science, it's also better user experience and design and use of big data and analytics. But I think there's huge opportunities to change. We, we throw out more food in this country every day than is consumed in Europe. Um, and and daily and uh, you know there's huge opportunities to change the way we consume food, the type of food we consume. Certainly on the water side, although I think there's lower hanging fruit to, to go after on the water side in terms of basic infrastructure. Um, I think that that I oh BGE. So B I think that's the last one, and I'm happy to talk later. But um, the question about BGE, they are BGE. Um, essentially has, uh, exists in markets, both in Maryland in particular, that have very good policy that incentivizes energy efficiency, and in PJM and, and um, more generally, which is in the mid-Atlantic region, region uh, which, which allows for them to bid demand reduction into the market instead of buying, uh, uh, generating assets. So again, apologies for the oversimplification. Thanks for having me, and I will get off the stage. Thanks. In closing out the episode, I would like to thank the conference organizers and our speaker, Alex Lasky. I produced this episode with help from my colleagues at Ecologic Institute. To view the full conference program and watch a video of the discussion, visit www.eleap.eu or search for the Atlantic Council on YouTube. Join us next week for the final episode in our Tipping Point series, which features a town hall discussion with experts from both sides of the Atlantic on the future of the Paris Climate Agreement. If you liked what you heard, please rate us on iTunes and subscribe through whatever podcast platform you use. Thank you for listening. Until next time.